you've got to be passionate about your case and your clients. Passion and curiosity fuel the sense of duty and commitment necessary to get back up and keep fighting. And part of that passion is being deeply committed, even when things are looking bad. (laughs) You've got to be prepared to go to war for those people. In 2021, women made up over half of all summer associates for the fourth year in a row. Yet equity partners in multi-tier law firms continue to be disproportionately white men. Only 22% of equity partners are women. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to LawHer, the show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal field. Be inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, build community, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I am Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is LawHer. Angela Mason has been with the Cochran firm since infancy, when it only served Alabama and sections of the Southeast. Today, the firm has over 42 office locations and has recovered over 30 billion for their clients. One of the first female hires, Angela now sits as managing partner of the Cochran firm Dothan office, as well as the managing director of the Cochran firm National. Early on, Angela made herself indispensable to her firm and the cases she worked on. She credits hard work for getting her recognized and commitment for allowing her to persevere. With over 25 years of experience in the legal field, she shares what makes a great trial attorney, the importance of seeking guidance while building networks, finding your own voice, and why curiosity is one of your greatest assets. Angela knew she wanted to be a lawyer from the third grade. Let's dive in. I think I was about in the third grade. And my mother had bought me this book that said, you can be anything. And it had all these careers listed for women. Uh, So this was in the 70s. uh, And uh, all the different job occupations that were available. And FBI agent and lawyer (laughs) were my top two choices. (laughs) Um, That's not ambitious at all. (laughs) Well, it said you can be anything. And I think actually it listed president of the United States as one of the jobs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they would tell you, you know, the annual income and what kind of schooling that required and all of that. I saw that you were in both the Equal Justice Foundation and Women's Law Student Association. What impact did those organizations have on your career and what you thought about the law? I was president of the Equal Justice Foundation at one at one point. I could think of my last year. And what we did was raise money uh, throughout the school year to then provide fellowships to law students who were going to go work in the public interest because they would be going to jobs that paid little to nothing. And we wanted to be able to fund that. And so I thought it was a very worthwhile cause and uh, I was very committed to it. I wasn't committed to necessarily going and working in public interest myself, (laughs) but I've always been a strong supporter of it, and that was a way that we could make sure that that the people who were willing, because it's a huge sacrifice, and the people who were willing to do it, we you know we could fund them. Two things happened. One was another. Uh, I started to say another attorney. He is an attorney now, but Neil Bessie was his name. He and I worked to get charity status, five hundred one c status for for the organization because it had kind of been rolling along and people weren't getting the deductions like REM was one of the 
entities that donated money. And uh, so they, everyone could get the tax benefit. And we also had the most fellowships awarded up until that point. I think they're even a huge, you know, now it's an even bigger thing. They give more fellowships for more money. So it's just continued to grow. Yeah, I really like that attitude because, as you said, it is a huge commitment and requires a lot of hard work. So to reward people that are willing to take that on, I think, and help support them. Absolutely. And, you know, they did things like Project Innocence in Montgomery and Atlanta. We had people do that, the Southern Poverty Law Center, things that are definitely worthwhile and that our society needs. And it enabled people who otherwise might not be able to do it to go do that. When you graduated law school in the mid-90s, according to a study from Hofstra, women made up 44% of all enrolled students. That was national average, actual percentage may have varied. And everyone has a unique experience. Can you take us to your time at University of Georgia School of Law? And how did it feel to be a woman in law school at that time? I think there were more women than men in my class. And so it felt normal. It felt, you know, just like co-ed, just like college was in terms of of experience. And we were able to do the same things as as the guys were. Uh, And it really wasn't even an issue as far as I was concerned. Now, I knew that it was an issue, of course, because I took things like employment discrimination. I had been in the world before I went to law school. So I, I knew that as well. And, you know, the Women's Law Student Association we had people come in, you know, speakers come in and talk with us and talk about their experiences once they got into the workforce. So from that perspective, we knew that we were going into a, a workplace that may have some barriers, but it didn't feel like we had any barriers while we were actually in law school. You talked about some support networks. Did you have other support networks, any mentors that stand out to you? Uh, yeah, I had uh, two mentors in law school. Uh, well, I had way more than that. And again, some of them were men and some of them were women. Probably I had two law professors, both men, who insisted that I apply for federal clerkship, Mm. which was not on my radar. I wasn't going to do and they insisted that I do it. So, you know, again, I think that I went I was in an environment where they really encouraged you based on everything was equal opportunity, so to speak. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that simple, but it seemed like that because they really reached out to me and wanted me to apply to these things. And another professor wanted me to be the tutor. In fact, I, I beat out the, the number one guy in our class. We were both up for that, and I got selected, even though I wasn't number one <laughs> for tu- tutoring. And I would say then I had uh, oh, actually my employment law, employment discrimination professor. She was the scariest professor we had, <laughs> very scary. And I would say she influenced me a lot just because I, I saw that you could be a very, my friend called her Snow White. She looked like Snow White, mm. very small, petite woman who scared the bejesus out of me. And I thought, okay, women can do this too. This is, this is not a problem. It's interesting how even though they may strike fear, they still managed to be an inspiration, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would say she was a role model, definitely. Yeah. Someday I may be able to strike fear. So I, I like well, that. I'm from time to time. Uh-huh, probably. <laughs> was there pressure to outperform your peers? Did you feel like you were oh, yes. in a competition? Oh, yeah. yeah. 
And I'm not sure how that happened because I was just there to see if I wanted to go to law school. And I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a lawyer at that point. So I was just doing this thing. But somehow I got caught up into this competition and this pressure, which now I say to people going to law school, hey, it's just school. <laughs> when I think about how urgent and anxious and, and how hard I thought I needed to work, I'm glad I worked hard, but it was really all that emotional energy was so unnecessary. Mm. Is there anything else looking back that maybe you would do differently? I would have spent less emotional energy worrying about stuff, and I would have skipped class a little bit more often. <laughs> Sound advice. <laughs> I only did that once, and it was so stressed me out. I skipped and went. Somebody said, "Let's go have coffee instead." So we did, and it was the most stressful coffee I'd ever had. You have spent nearly your entire career at the Cochrane Firm, and I'd love to dig into the evolution of the firm and you as an attorney. When you started, what was the firm like, and what was your position? Well, when I started, it was a local Alabama firm that did some work in other states, but was generally confined to the Southeast and Alabama in particular. I forget, maybe there were seven men mm -hmm. and me, and I was the first woman that they had hired. And I had actually worked at the law firm. I was trying to decide between getting my uh, PhD in composition, English composition, and going to law school. And I, I couldn't really decide. And I had a friend who was working on his Ph.D. in psychology and in particular vocational. He was specializing in vocational counseling. And he said, look, you need to work in a law office and see if that's what you want to do. And then you can make your decision. So I took a year off and I worked in a law firm. And the most frustrating thing was I needed to know more to be able to do more to help more people. And that law firm was the beginning of what is the law firm I work at now. And when I went to law school, I didn't know necessarily I was coming back to the law firm I'd started out at, but um, that was the case. And so I turned out to be the first woman that they hired and they had to assure me <laughs> that they were very excited to hire a woman and they would not hold it against me. And really I needed to come consider being working with them because they really, uh, the, the area of the law we have and in the particular region that we're in, I mean, it's mostly white men are the, are the attorneys for plaintiff's law firms, which is what we do. Sure. I really like what you said just there to know more and to be able to do more and to be able to help more people. Well, I remember saying to my boss, who is now my partner, is there some kind of book with the rules in it that I can look <laughs> at? Uh, and he handed me the rules of civil procedure. And I thought, oh, my God, it's the treasure. It's It's got all the rules in it. It's true. It's a good book with all the rules. <laughs> yes. I was able to read them and figure out and help write some briefs even before I went to law school. That's amazing. And then as the firm grew, what strategic moves did you make to kind of get where you are today, a managing partner? I worked really hard and I, I tried to make myself indispensable. I was willing to live without a regular paycheck because it was eat what you kill. So you only got a portion of the fees you brought in. And so on these bigger cases that I had to work on, I would say, you know, there would be 10 months at a time where I didn't get any paychecks. Wow. Which is very scary. Very scary. <laughs> I was in a position that I could do that. It really helped me move along. And in turn, 
get to know the powers that be, including Johnny Cochran, so that they would turn to me again when, when they needed help. Newer hires don't necessarily understand that they need to make themselves indispensable to a case, and then they've locked in their place in the firm, their position. And this may sound sexist, but it seems like women know that better than men, though. When you go in and you make yourself indispensable, you you aren't necessarily told, do A, B, and C. You go in and say, we're working on a case, and then you say to the person you're helping, I'm going to do A, B, C, And by the way, D, E, and F. And then you're in a situation where the person comes to rely on you and you you get to go along on everything and then you learn yourself how to do what they've been doing. And eventually the mentor, the mentee becomes the mentor. So that's what I'm I'm talking about. But it doesn't seem like, I haven't noticed as much with young male associates the uh, recognition that they need to be in the middle of everything in order to secure a spot and be relied upon. Okay. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's there's a level of EQ to like what you said, to recognize here are the things that are unique to this situation and unique to this case and to, to these clients that I can do to make myself indispensable to them. And it's probably something that women and minorities in general have had to harness just because advancement is not just automatically granted to them. They have to figure out lots of different ways. That, I think, is one of them. When I started out 20 years ago, I was the only woman. When I would go to a deposition, they assumed I was the court reporter, especially when I was dragging my my rolling brief bag with me. They thought that was my (laughs) court reporting equipment. (laughs) Nope. <laughs> and it, I would try to use it to my advantage. I'd sit quietly and, and listen to them talk, them thinking that I wasn't the other attorney. But Yeah, take them by surprise. <laughs> so what is it about this firm that has kept you here year after year? Well, I think it is definitely the fact that I've been afforded opportunities unique to this particular law firm, but then also opportunities to do a variety of things. I wasn't just pigeonholed into, oh, Angie, you're a good writer, write this brief. I had to write briefs, but they also let me go to trial and they let me develop my skills, trial skills. They let me, I mean, now I'm managing partner, so that at some point they helped me develop my administrative skills. There has never been a ceiling for me at this firm. Look to other women in your field to learn how to improve your craft. Don't be afraid to connect with women at other firms and create a trusted network. Part of the way that our firm is built is we've been allowed to work with other law firms. In 2007, we had a huge class action in West Virginia. And basically, I I lived in West Virginia for three months. But we worked with a law firm who also had very few women lawyers, and they had the one woman lawyer whose style was completely different from mine and so effective. And so for a while, I wanted to, I thought, oh, I can just emulate her. I need to be like her in her cross-examination skills and that sort of thing. But it was great to find somebody who was in a similar position as me, have a different style than I did, 
but essentially had done the same thing that I had done and come up the same way that I had come up, only she lived in Pensacola. And so I would say those times when I've met other women who are like the sole woman or which is rare and rarer now, those have helped me along. You know, I knew that there were resources that I could turn to and there was a special bond there because we knew what each other was going through. And by the way, I only would last like maybe 90 seconds before I abandoned her style and went back to my own because it just wouldn't work for me. Yes, that's other really good advice that I've heard from other lawyers is be yourself. <laughs> and that's, it's taken a long time for me to be comfortable with that. Sure. As managing partner, what are some of the initiatives you're excited about? When I first started working, I was interested in employment discrimination cases, employment law, employment discrimination. And the more I practiced, the further and further I got away from that, just because of the demands of my practice didn't allow for me to do that. But now that I'm managing partner, I am very interested. And actually, we have a, a, a young woman here who is going to law school right now, and she doesn't know it, but I'm planning to turn her into an employment discrimination lawyer. <laughs> we get a lot of those calls, and I think there's a natural synergy behind the uh, with the idea of Johnny Cochran and discrimination, all that, so that we get a lot of those calls, and we wind up referring them out. Or our New York office does it all the time, but I would like to really develop that practice here as well. Go back to my roots, so to speak. And then we have the Cinderella project. I don't know if Jessica mentioned that or not, but we, our office, Casey, our marketing person in particular, and Jessica Givens to a large degree, they head up a project where we get people to donate prom, gently used prom dresses or stores that didn't sell their prom dresses. And the girls come and look for dresses, you know, that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to go to the prom. And so we have an event annually with that, although COVID interrupted it. But sure, uh, we do that as well. Try to have a little party and get get girls out here to see if they can find something. That's a great idea. I love that. So how do you stay sane? Do you have any rituals when you're prepping for trial? I never have that kind of time. I'm still working on whatever it is trying to get ready for trial. So no, I don't have have that kind of ritual. But what I have tried to do is be prepared, of course, but try to take everything as it comes and not to sweat it because that's what I did in law school. Freaked out in law school. Try to live my life without freaking out and just rising to those challenges. And that's something that I think I've helped convey to the other partners in my office as well, the other associates of, you know, it's just a hearing. It's going to be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like managing your expectations and then, yeah, controlling what you can control. You are a total powerhouse in trial. You worked on a DuPont case that resulted in $390 million, the highest consumer verdict in the U.S. in 2007. And you have been involved in multiple cases with major and far-reaching impact. Of all the trials that you have worked on, which are you most proud of? I think probably the one you mentioned uh, against DuPont. That's the West Virginia case. It was, I mean, it was far reaching and, and I liked it because I got to know a lot of the clients, even though it was a class action with 3,000 people. I did get to know a lot of people involved in, in that. And in fact, I continued to talk with them well after the case was over. 
And so that's good. But I have to say, you know, that's a big case with dozens of lawyers. But I also really like the cases where it's just one or two clients, one plaintiff and me, and we go in. And because a small case isn't small to the person who has the case. And that to me is just as rewarding. A work comp case, these people need help just as much as the people in the class did. And so they all bring their their own rewards. And it's not even necessarily in a trial. If you can get a good settlement for somebody that uh, improves their life, that's really what it's all about. Sure. So for each case that you take on, what is the goal? To improve improve their situation. Whatever their situation is, when they come to me, I want to make it better. And even if I can't make it better, I don't want to be in a situation where we try and I haven't improved in some way. I mean, you don't win every case. You can't win every case. But even in that situation, you still want to leave the client better than you found them. And that's, that's really, really the goal. I love that. Regardless of the outcome to still have made a positive impact. Yeah. What motivates you to keep going? We have all these clients counting on us, you know, that we have a commitment to help our people that, and that's what we do. If I don't come to work, then I'm not helping them after I promise to do so. And so that's what we do. Commitment is what keeps Angela showing up to work day in and day out, year after year. This value also makes her a better trial attorney. You've got to be passionate about your case and your clients. And part of that passion is being deeply committed, even when things are looking bad. You've got to be prepared to go to go to war for those people. And in terms of just actual career development or, or professional development, you want to keep learning. You want to keep going and seeing other people's trials. You want to go to seminars. You want to go to trial practice camps so that you see the way other people are doing it and you can get get new ideas. I mean, I I was reading a deposition that my partner took this morning. I mean, I was reading it this morning in preparation for another deposition I'm taking. And he has a different style than I did. But and I called him up and I asked him, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? So even somebody I work with every day, I could look and see he was doing it a little bit differently and that I needed to try that. So I I mean, I think that's important too. I would say that passion is certainly a common denominator that I have seen in all of the powerhouse attorneys that I have had the chance to meet. That's definitely a common denominator. Well, and you know, as time goes on, you sometimes you lose that passion or it fades a little bit. And I, I just recently came back from a, a conference out in Las Vegas and I was struck. It was the last class seminar. There weren't a whole lot of people there. I happened to be there and I was just so inspired by the topic and I stayed after and I said, what can I do to help you on this cause? And it was just great to feel that that passion again. And then Leo Dell, she actually clerked, clerked for a judge that I clerked for after her. She was his first law clerk and I was two behind her. But she gave a presentation about the uh, talc 
case and uh, the uterine cancer and ovarian cancer because John- Johnson Johnson's in bankruptcy. But, you know, her presentation was so inspiring as well, because even though it's I mean, I think it's seven or eight years now that's been going on. And now J&J is in bankruptcy and they don't know if people are going to be able to be compensated. They did just get word that the baby powder is being taken off the market really? throughout the world, not just, the, you know, they took it off the market in the U.S. and Canada, but continued everywhere else. And she said, so, you know, regardless of what happens, we know we saved lives. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, that's, that was very inspiring to me to hear that as well. That's an excellent point for particularly like in situations with J&J where there is bankruptcy, there's no more money, right? There is still this other side of it that there was prevention of anyone ever being injured. So I think it's good to keep that perspective as well. If you weren't a lawyer, what would you do instead? I would be an elementary or high school English teacher. If I had gone on with my PhD, I wanted to get a job at a community college. Oh, like Jill Biden. They'll do what Jill Biden does because I was very committed to the idea of of junior colleges or community colleges that would make themselves available to the most amount of people at an affordable price. And you can help, you know, I taught before I I came here to practice, before I went to the law firm to see what a law firm was like, I taught technical writing, uh, business writing, freshman composition. So I probably would have done that. And at a certain point, I got interested in public high schools because I felt like they were getting the short end of the stick. What are some of your favorite books then? Do you follow like young adult or children's books still? All. (laughs) Okay, good. What are your favorites? (laughs) So when Harry Potter first came out, I mean, obviously I've read all of them, but the first one was, you know, a little, it was not as sophisticated and was for a younger group, I think, but I loved it. And then the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants or whatever. Oh, yes. I read all of those in a weekend. So I like all of that. I I bought all these children, particularly when uh, Ruth Ginsburg passed away. I gave all the young children in my life a Ruth Ginsburg book. I love that. So children's book. Yeah. You know. I like it all. Yeah, I I find myself reading kids fiction all the time. Still, it's just wholesome, inspiring, a break from the world. So, and then you're very busy. Court can be very stressful. (laughs) Running a business can be very stressful. (laughs) What do you do when you need to decompress or take some time for yourself? I always look forward to traveling and just being able to be incommunicado for a few days. I'll go with just about anywhere. You know, the other thing is to sit down with a book because it's the same sort of, I don't want to say escape, that isn't really the right word, but put you in a place where you're not thinking about anything but what you're reading or you're not thinking about anything but the place you're visiting and trying to figure out how to say in Italian, where's the bathroom? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the kind yes. of thing. Yes. Where are some of your favorite places that you've been? The best trip I ever went on was a very unexpected trip to Northern Ireland. That was a very last minute thing where we decided to go. We were in Dublin and decided to go to Northern Ireland. And I knew so little about it. I was like, do they use the same kind of money? (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute, wouldn't they used to have bombings? Uh, So I was 
very uninformed and we were only there for two and a half days and and I keep trying to arrange to go back but it was the most educational thing and not in a dry boring way but you know we learned about the troubles we met a lot of people it was just it was a, just a very unexpected wonderful experience I guess in part because I had no expectations and just met it as it came and it was it was a lot of fun that's important i think sometimes especially when traveling because yeah. there's a lot of expectations around it to just let the day unfold as it does right like in dublin we had a checklist we need to go to the trinity library we need to go see the book of kells we need to go to the guinness factory you know that kind of stuff but we had nothing no expectations we just went and got there and said okay now what and it was great yes i have taken to scheduling days like that just in my normal yeah. life, a see where the day takes you day, you know, where there's nothing on the checklist. Exactly. I think that's, yes. It's only taken 50 years to learn to do that, but yeah. <laughs> Is there anywhere you haven't been that you really want to go? Well, I have some friends in Iceland right now mm. and they keep sending me some really great pictures. So I would like to go to Iceland. I saw about a cruise to Antarctica. I would like to do that. Oof. Um, I'm assuming that's in the summertime. I, I think it would have to be. But really, anywhere. I, I mean, I would be happy to go just, just about anywhere. For minorities in the legal space, advancement is not a guarantee. To get to where you aim to be, make yourself indispensable. If you are working a case, state how you intend to meet expectations and what you will do to exceed them. Remember that you cannot build a career in isolation. Create your network. Look to other women you admire for guidance and new ways of trying cases. Remain true to who you are in the process. Authenticity is key. If you want to practice for the long run, tap into your passion. Often, stay curious, learn from your colleagues, attend seminars, and observe trials. A huge thank you to Angela for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. You have been listening to Lawher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or it just made you smile, please share this episode with the trailblazers in your life. For more about Angela Mason, check out our show notes. And while you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. And I will see you next week on Lawher, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field. Mm-hmm.